0: At Eastern Bank, we believe that growing business should also grow the community. That's why we work to give all business owners what they need to take their dreams to the next level. Our dedication to small businesses and communities has inspired us to create the Equity Alliance for Business program and become the number one SBA lender in Massachusetts for 15 years running. We're proud to be here for all businesses, big and small. See the good we can do for you by visiting easternbank.com business. Member FDIC. Welcome to Say More from Boston Globe Opinion. I'm Shirley Leung. Radar, nuclear engineering, the human genome, email, technicolor. So many scientific advances we take for granted can be traced back to MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. The university occupies a unique space in American higher education, sitting squarely at the intersection of learning and real-world application. But with great power comes great responsibility. Yes, the big brains at MIT are capable of brilliant solutions to pressing problems, like climate change. And yet, even exciting technologies like AI can be rife with questions of right and wrong. So the challenge for MIT isn't just, how do you solve the world's biggest problems? It's also, what role should the university play in deciding how science is used? Here to talk about all of this is the new president of MIT, Sally Kornbluth, a specialist in biology she took over in January after eight years as provost at Duke University. Sally, welcome to Say More. It's great to have you here. Well, thank you so much. Happy to be here. So you've been at MIT for eight months now. And MIT is more than just a school. It's it's a place full of inventors where, you know, cool stuff gets created. So what is it about MIT that makes it so different from other places? You know,
1: it's interesting because this actually... Even relates to why I came to MIT. You know, I was a provost at Duke University for eight years. I was very happy where I was, fantastic university, great people. But, you know, when MIT called, I felt I had no choice but to say yes. And the reason is because MIT is not only driven by basic curiosity to figure out how things work, like most universities, and driven by educating the best and the brightest, like most universities but also has this incredible mission to impact society. And, you know, looking at sort of what I wanted to do professionally, I thought this is a world-class opportunity to um, work with a group of brilliant people to do things that can actually move the needle for real people in the world. And, you know, every single day, no exaggeration, I hear something mind-blowing that could have great societal impact. And I feel privileged. The other thing is that, individually, the MIT faculty are not only great academics, which again, you see at all top universities, there's this incredible entrepreneurial spirit. They're always trying to think how they can innovate, how they can get things out there to the public. It's just a really unusual culture that extends all the way from the faculty and staff through even to the very earliest undergraduates. First years will come up and tell you about you know, what they're trying to do to change the world.
0: So uh, the Hollywood movie Oppenheimer just came out, and it's got a lot of people thinking about the ethics of scientific advances. You know, some 80 years ago, we dropped atomic bombs on Japan, and and we're still debating it. And some would argue AI is kind of similar to nuclear technology. It's a valuable tool with, you know, dangerous potential. And MIT plays a big role in the development of AI. So how involved is a university in thinking about ethical use?
1: So I have to say that this is another thing that's impressed me about MIT, which is, you know, with these great capabilities also come great societal responsibility. First of all, there's a group that works on the social and ethical responsibility of computing in general, never mind just AI. There are many faculty here who are trying to formulate guidance both for legislators and for the public in terms of thinking about the attendant risks. So recently, I just put out a call for impact papers to the whole faculty where we would award you know small seed grants to really bring people together to think about these issues. Not only the ethical piece, but how is generative AI going to impact all of the professions and all of life as we know it. What I'm asking them to do is thinking about the impact on real people's lives. And so this was a competition. We got 75 applications in a very short period of time. And what I hope to do is have a collection of, if you will, sort of definitive positions from MIT faculty. You know, this is obviously a snapshot in time, it's definitive for what we know and think now, but really to help inform the world about how we're thinking about these issues. How is AI going to expedite their work, but also how are they going to deal with it in an ethical
0: and responsible manner? Have, have you seen Oppenheimer, the movie? I have. I have. And when you saw it, I mean, did you think about, you know, your own role and as a, a leader of scientists and, and the kind of responsibility you have? I think it is so easy for scientists to get caught up in the
1: incredible enthusiasm and passion for their work. So I think one thing that was clear in Oppenheimer was, you know, the scientists doing the work, including Oppenheimer himself, they were motivated by the ability to do this thing. You know, it was a huge scientific challenge. And I think the movie depicted quite well the sudden realization of the repercussions of this work after the bomb had been dropped. You have to think up front about the social and ethical implications of your work. Now, of course, at MIT right now, I'm hoping our big challenges that we're facing are very transparently for the greater good. In other words, you know, I think when I think about climate change, you know, we don't wanna do something that's gonna inadvertently cause harm, but I think the goal is so obviously positively directed for society, or we're doing a lot of work now at the junction between life sciences and engineering, How do we bring better devices, better medical advances to the public? You know, I don't feel like we're dealing in anything very ethically murky, and so that actually is is quite helpful. Could I imagine that we might get into something, for instance, like dual-use research? You know, that may have you know both military and civilian uses. Then you have to think carefully about you know the ethical responsibility of bringing forth these discoveries. But I think I honestly think that. MIT scientists, this is really at the forefront and honestly part of the daily discussion that I hear around here.
0: What are your ethics related fears about generative AI, which is the most powerful form of AI that everyone's talking about, like GPT-4?
1: You know, I, to be honest with you, I'm not in the doomsayer camp at all. Like, I don't really have a lot of fears about it. You know, I feel though that. Um, and wait,
0: why, why? Why? Yeah, why don't you have any fears about it?
1: Right now, I think it's overstated the degree to which its actions are really independent of human creativity. Mm. So, for example, so humans are still relevant.
0: <laughs> humans are still totally
1: relevant. Now, one thing though that I think MIT is thinking about in this regard, you could view ChatGPT as the ultimate in human assistance technology. Okay, so if you almost think about it like a bionic assistive device it's like your other hard drive up in your head you know it could really be used to great effect there's been a lot of worry in academia about plagiarism in generative ai right mm-hmm, so right. like write an essay on x and suddenly like all the students are like you know gener- getting so there's a couple things one is i think everybody's aware of this now the second thing is at least given the current state of technology the quality of the prose the specificity of the examples, the accuracy is not quite there. So what you really want to do is say to students, have JATGPT generate an essay on X. Show it to me. Then think about how you use that architecture. Write it more succinctly. Add analysis. Think about how this helps you. So I know a lot of professionals now who'll run it through, especially for kind of a pro forma sort of thing, run it through, get get a version, and then really just use that as a, a starting scaffold to make things better.
0: So MIT students, they can use generative AI for homework and they won't get in trouble?
1: <laughs> well, it's really faculty member dependent. I think what's really important, and this has always been true, and I'll say what I mean by that, for to define in syllabi for individual faculty to, to be very clear about what their expectations are.
0: Earlier this year, MIT physics professor Max Tegmark, I mean, he wrote an open letter to tech giants asking them to hit the pause button on big AI experiments. And the letters garnered more than 33,000 signatories, including other MIT professors. So, I mean... What do you make of that letter? I mean, you're not a doomsayer, but should that be happening? Should they hit the pause button? Should they, you know, should there be guardrails around AI immediately? So, a couple things. One is, I don't think it's realistic at this point,
1: particularly with large commercial enterprises having a big interest. What you don't want is to wind up in a situation where a few players continue to innovate and move the field forward and all of the academics who will be offering many shades of nuance, are now out of it. The other thing, though, I want to say about the TechMark letter and signatories, which is kind of the beauty of academia, we have a bell curve of opinions on any subject. And I might not personally agree with the tail in any discussion, but everybody has the right to put forth those arguments. I don't agree that a pause is going to be effective. I think that horse has left the barn some time ago, but I entirely defend the right of individuals to think about that, talk about it, request it, uh, et cetera. So th- that's kind of how I view it at this point.
0: More of my conversation with Sally Cornbluth after a quick break. Across New England, commercial businesses of all sizes rely on Eastern Bank. We help clients grow by being able to answer their larger loan needs and by offering innovative solutions, smart decision making, and one-on-one relationships. From franchise financing to community development and asset-based lending, our knowledgeable and experienced commercial team deeply understands your business and the communities you serve. See how we can help you meet your business goals at easternbank.com/commercial. And this is what it sounds like. Member FDIC. In late two thousand seven. The remains of a young woman from the Casca Nation were discovered in the Yukon woods.
1: I always think about, I want to know what really happened.
0: So I travel north to try to understand what happened and who was involved.
1: It's a pretty big risk to come forward with the information that I have.
0: I'm David Ridgen and this is Someone Knows Something Season 8. The Angel Carlet Case. Available now. I know MIT has already invested a lot in climate change research, and you spoke about climate change with urgency in your inauguration address to the MIT community. I mean, I think you called it a runaway crisis. So what about the issue inspires and motivates you? So, you know, first of all, I view it as an existential issue
1: to the extent that if we don't take action there, all of the many, many other things we're working on—not that they'll be irrelevant, but they'll pale in comparison. I mean, look at look at what's happened in the just the U.S. Never mind globally this summer with weather events. You know, this has the um, potential to, to impact and to derail many, many other things that are going on in society. So that's one of the reason I view it's imperative. It was funny the day after my inauguration. A lot of you know friends came from all over, and I was like. Did I just say I'm going to solve climate change? And they were like, "You yes, did, you yes, did, yeah, exactly. you did, you did." Exactly.
0: <laughs> by so, by twenty thirty three, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. So you gave, you gave yourself a deadline, <laughs> exactly.
1: And so you know, the reason I put such a strong stake in the ground is twofold, threefold. One is the existential issue that I just told you about. The other is, you know, twenty percent of MIT is already working on climate change and you know by articulating this strongly it's saying hey folks we're doing so much let's elevate it let's aggregate it let's have real world impact and then the other is that i do think giving voice to this you know there has been a lot of you know people are moving to climate change is clearly real given everything that's going on but there's been so much political controversy around climate change i want to say to everybody in the mit community Not only is this huge and important, we can do something about it. Uh,
0: So do you think we can engineer our way out of climate change?
1: It depends on the time frame you talk about. Now, the thing about MIT that's really interesting that I think people tend to overlook or underestimate is there are a huge number of people who are working on policy, regulation, etc. The difference between most places that are doing it Is it is underpinned by great technological understanding. One of the biggest shorter term impacts comes not from flipping the technological switches, it's from flipping the policy switches, changes in carbon taxes, changes in energy efficiency regulations, et cetera, et cetera. And so can we engineer our way out of it? In the long term, I think that's going to be incredibly important. There are technological advances that will move the needle. But I think in the shorter term, we have to make smart policy recommendations to the extent that we can use MIT's voice to say, if we do X, Y, and Z in policy, we can make the kind of advances that by 2033, even if we have not totally solved climate change, we have moved the needle significantly because of things that we already have in our hands.
0: It's been clear for decades, you know, the science has been clear that we need to protect our planet, but not everyone believes in the science. So that's why we don't have significant policy changes. And so it often feels like politics is the main barrier to climate action. I mean, do you feel like scientists should be getting more political when it comes to saving the environment?
1: You know, it's it's a little bit the definition of getting more political. I do think what scientists need to do are uh, uh, two things. One is that You know, I think scientists have not always been pressured in the right way to articulate science in a way that the lay public can understand. If you really think that there are things that we can do that we can explain in a clear and understandable way, why it's going to make such a huge impact, how it's going to change people's lives. I think that's one responsibility. The other thing that I was going to say is that You know, in general, public trust of higher education is not (laughs) nowhere near an all time high. Let's just put it that way. But, you know, there are instances where the public looks to scientists in a way that we can take that moment to engender trust. So I think MIT is such a place. I don't think people view MIT at all as a political entity. The public perception of MIT is that. Innovations come from MIT that improve lives. So the extent to which MIT can articulate the importance of these issues in a trusted and fact-based manner, I think it's important. You know, it's interesting not to tout another university, but I think it was very clear during COVID, you know, you open the New York Times every day and you saw the Johns Hopkins map. You know, that kind of raised the profile of Hopkins as a trusted biomedical source, you know. Because it didn't look like a political thing. And there were so many political fights going on around COVID and the vaccines and everything else. But people could look at that map and say, okay, cases are increasing, cases are decreasing. You know, So to the extent that we can provide in lay terms, in visually sort of graphical appealing ways to people, they understand what's happening. I think that that you can have that discussion divorced from all of the political baggage.
0: What are the type of engineering solutions that are most exciting to you that are being worked on at MIT right now in terms of addressing climate change?
1: So one thing, you know, one thing I thought was really interesting, there are groups working. So a lot of um, carbon emissions come from construction, from cement production, etc. You know, groups here are developing ways to decarbonize cement production, for example. So you know other ways to produce construction materials we've also got people in the school of architecture thinking about how you redesign cities and how you change construction processes so that all these activities um don't add to greenhouse gases so i think that's one thing that's really interesting and then obviously you know the zero carbon energy folks there's fusion there's fission there's people working on geothermal how do you tap into the you know earth's energy for energy sources there's long term battery storage so I'm really excited. Those are the longer term things. In other words, how do you put technologies in place so we're not reliant on fossil fuels going forward? And then again, there are the people who are like, how do you, methane is a greenhouse gas we don't think about as much. Desiree Plata and colleagues are trying to figure out how do you remove methane from the environment? So, like cows, I just, right? They,
0: cows farting, right? <laughs> you got it. You, I didn't, I wasn't going to say that, but exactly. Or is there burping? I don't know. Uh, But yeah, I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) Something from cows. Exactly. Uh, So I want to end this conversation asking you about the dominant issue in higher education. This is after the Supreme Court in June struck down affirmative action in college admissions. How will this impact MIT?
1: It's going to impact MIT just like all other institutions. However, I will say this. First of all, We are we're certainly going to follow the law and we are certainly going to use everything in our means possible to keep an open and increase the pipeline of underrepresented students to MIT. MIT has a track record of success in this realm, not only based on affirmative action, but based on pipeline programs. For instance, MITES, who brings in, you know, underrepresented high school students, both in the summer and actually throughout the semester, we have partnerships with community colleges. And networks that I think we can be more intentional about ferreting out talent where it is. One thing we're talking a lot about is how do we make MIT level academic preparatory material available? The other thing is obviously, like everybody else, we're going to try to make MIT very visible to high schools where students, you know, more underrepresented students are, et cetera. You know, it's interesting. We get into these discussions, and I will tell you, MIT has never been more diverse. And it's never been more excellent. What's the
0: diversity? Talk a little bit about the student population.
1: You know, I don't have all the numbers on my fingertips, but for example, the undergraduates, I think it's like 15% Black students this year. Undergrad. I believe it's approaching, you know, 40% Asian students. And then we have, obviously, I don't know the numbers on Latinx, but, you know, this has been ever increasing year over year. And so, you know, we want to keep that diversity at the undergraduate level even if you did not believe that it was the right thing to do, and I do believe it's the right thing to do, even if you did not, and you were just a pragmatic realist, look at the changing demographics of this country. How does MIT stay productive and relevant if we're excluding the vast majority of our talent pool going forward? You know, I think the most successful institutions are going to be the ones that can tap into the full range of human talent. MIT is one of the few institutions in the country that are both need-blind and committed to meeting the full need of the students who are accepted. So, you know, I don't deny the problems of finance in higher education, but we are extremely fortunate that we can apply our resources to making sure that the financial piece is not a barrier. So, you know, 85% of students graduate from MIT with no debt at all.
0: Wow. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah.
1: I didn't incredible. know that.
0: Yeah. One of the things that's coming under fire right now is legacy admissions at universities. And MIT has never had that. You know, why and, and why did that never happen? And it doesn't seem like it's had an impact on you. No. You know, a couple
1: things. One is MIT really believes in potential over pedigree. It always has. That's a core belief at MIT. You know, I think sometimes a legacy admissions are driven, obviously, by, you know, people wanting financial contributions, et cetera. You know, MIT, more than any place I've ever seen, the philanthropy is based mostly on the brilliance of the ideas and the investment in impacting the world.
0: So this isn't the first time MIT has had a woman president. I think Susan Hockfield yes. Uh, yes. was among the predecessors. But this is the first time MIT has a woman president provost and chancellor at the same time. Yeah. So so what do you see the as the significance of this? I view it as kind of um uh
1: the outcome of many years of you know sort of efforts to bring equity to academia. So it wasn't an intentional like let's go pick a woman president, let's pick a woman provost, let's pick a woman chancellor. It was giving women the opportunities that allowed them to rise in the ranks, it does mean, again, that we look to the full range of talent pool, and whoever emerges, emerges.
0: I still feel like there's a pipeline issue. I mean, you don't seem to see that many women engineers, software developers, you know, faculty, you know, at universities. There are not more women tech and biotech CEOs. What's missing?
1: So, you know, I think it's a historical artifact of two things. One is, people not actively encouraging girls to go in this direction. And the other is, you know, it's kind of self-perpetuating not having role models. And so, you know, I think a big thing now, you pointed to the women leadership at MIT, we're also seeing a nice increase in women engineering faculty and women science faculty. I think it behooves those of us who has have succeeded along these lines to reach down and help encourage and educate girls, young women to enter these areas. And, you know, we're actually seeing progress in that regard because if you look at each level you know i think it's like 25% you know of the professoriate here are women but if you look at the assistant professors it's 40% you know and if you look at the undergraduates it's nearly 50-50 so i think what's going to happen over time is if those of us who became scientists successfully are really intentional so i think that's another area where MIT can really help make a difference because we have some successful examples and they can reach down and try to make it possible for others. Again, we want leadership in these areas to reflect what's happening in society. And so, you know, the closer we get to 50-50 reality, the more that these enterprises mirror the world around us. We've seen, particularly in academia, a lot of women who honestly have shouldered the administrative burdens long-term in an unsung way are now getting the opportunity to do those things
0: in a public way and lead, and you know I think that that's great. Well, Sally, thank you so much, and I can't wait to see what MIT invents next. Well, thank you so much. This was very fun. Say more is a production of the Boston Globe. Today's episode was produced by Anna Kusmer, with help from Scott Hellman, Jesse Remedios. Alexis Sargent, and Abby Canina. Our editor is Jim Dow. Our engineer is Ariana Martinez. Maggie Taylor is our marketing coordinator. Our music is from APM Music. If you like the show, please follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Find us online at globe.com opinion. I'm Shirley Liang. Thanks for listening.